Um, so we've been talking about predestination. Uh, this is, I think, the third Sunday we are talking about predestination. And last Sunday we began talking about predestination through the, uh, through the story of Joseph, looking at the story of Joseph. This is very, very important for us because God has spoken to us um, uh, about Joseph. And I would have mentioned last Sunday, in 2013, God spoke to us about Joseph being our prophetic icon. Uh, basically, uh, Joseph being uh, an example of life for us that we were to follow. And uh, I want to pick up on that uh, from last Sunday and continue with this issue of predestination through the story of Joseph. Predestination through the story of Joseph. Very, very beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, again, beginning with the definition of predestination, uh, I think we've been picking up on these definitions, but in case you've missed it, uh, biblically speaking, the word predestination means to determine beforehand, uh, to, to, to predetermine boundary lines and limitations. You, are, you and I exist in, in these boundary lines and limitations, and hopefully we're discerning them, and as we make our, our life choices and decisions, we are, like I said, dancing within those boundary lines. You never ever want to cross the line that God has drawn around you for whatever reason, whether it's for reasons of offense, of pleasure, whatever reason. You don't want to cross the lines that God has drawn around you because your future depends on it. Um, your future peace depends on it. The life of God in the future depends on those things. And, and so we've got to be dancing within the boundary lines that God has drawn for us uh, to predetermine boundary lines and limitations. Uh, you know, predestination literally means to set destiny in advance, to set dense destiny in advance. It, it means that you and I have a destiny. You and I have a, 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 some level of significance in the future. And um, we need to hopefully, again, discern the Lord as he leads us to that significant future. We come out, the story of, the human story is oftentimes, we come, in, we come out of brokenness and hopefully, we, we allow God to lead us into some level of significance in Christ in the future. That's what predestination is really all about. And, and the scriptures we've been using is Romans 8, 29, Ephesians 1, 5, Ephesians 1, 11. And those scriptures speak about predestination. And so that's basically a definition of, of predestination as we've been going through. Then that definition of predestination makes me... Um, you know, remember this phrase in Christ that we did speak about, I think, last year sometime, when we talk about the teaching on salvation, or salvation in Christ. And, and you know, the, the famous scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if a man is in Christ, that man is a new creation, if a man is in Christ. And there are a couple of verses in the New Testament that talk about in Christ, to being in Christ, and really doctrinally or theologically, the phrase in Christ means that Christ is our defined sphere of options and limits. And limits, sorry. Christ is our defined sphere of options and limits. Uh, as we as we so when we quote the scripture to be those who are in Christ in our new creation, that does not happen automatically. Those who are in Christ, if a man is in Christ, is a new. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. Really means if anyone is administrating life according to the principles of Christ. If you wanted to paraphrase that. And so we know that Christ is our destiny, according to Romans 8.29. So we have to think about this thing of being in Christ. 
you know, you are in Christ. You are not just, don't think of yourself in, in, in a social, at, you know, at least social context. I know maybe surrounded by a couple of problems and all, but you are in Christ. Look at your neighbor and say, you are in Christ. Yeah, so, and Christ, meaning Christ is our defined sphere of options and limits. He is our predestination. You know, Christ is our, pre we are destined, predestined to be conformed to him, to his nature. And I think that's quite a profound thing to really, really think about. And um, what we also said a couple of, you know, two, two weeks ago was there are three spheres of predestination according to the word of God. We are predestined to family as sons or into sonship. That's uh, Ephesians 1, 5. We are predestined to be transformed in Christ, Romans 8, 29. And we're predestined to the plan and the purpose of God. That's like we're predestined to submission. Uh, Ephesians 1.11. And I want us to be thinking about that too. Because I think that's very, very important. Predestined to a sons. They're not predestined to be an orphan or to be a street kid. They're not predestined to isolation. They're predestined to be part of a family. God adds the lonely to families. The progression and the journey of God is always to add us into something. Always to add us into something. Never simply to keep us isolated, but to add us, to expand our humanity, to add us into something, to, to, to bring us to a place of community, of family. God adds the lonely in families. Uh, that's what the scripture says. God added to the church in Acts chapter 2. And so we think about that. Predestined to family, Ephesians 1, 5. Predestined to be transformed. So conviction and transformation is part of the journey. You and I need to be transformed. We are called to be transformed in Christ. And predestined according to the plan and purpose of God. Ephesians 1 verse 11. Uh, I want us to be thinking about those spheres of predestination. And there's a scripture I want to bring to us this afternoon. As we get back into the story of Joseph. This is a scripture that reflects the nature of God. As we think about predestination. And this scripture is found in Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 11. This is God talking about himself. He says, remember this. Fix this. Fix it in, in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. You know when God says, he's clarifying the fact that there's no other authority that has the power to determine the cause of life other than God himself. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. No one else. There is no other spirit or power out there with the authority, with the capacity to determine the cause of life other than God, Jehovah, the creator of life. In verse 10 it says, I make known the end from the beginning. How beautiful is that? I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That's a God that you and I want to serve, right? Then it says in verse 11, from the east I summon a bed of prey, from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. How amazing is that? And he says, what I have said, 
that will I bring about. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Which means that you and I need to concern ourselves with the things God has said. Because the things God has said, he will bring about. It means we have you and I need to go back to the prophetic record and consider what is it that God has said to me and what is it that God has said to us. Because the things God has said, he will bring about. That is his nature. You know, in Hebrews, it's, it talks about God is not a man that he should lie. That he will fulfill his promises. From the east, I summon a bed of prey. From a far off land, a man, I summon a man to fulfill my purpose. I call people. What I have said, that I will bring about. It makes me to be absolutely concerned about what is it that God has said. Because that which he has said, as long as we authenticate that something reflects the voice of God, that thing will surely come to pass. It will not delay. The vision that has come from God will surely come to pass. And to use the words of Abba Habakkuk, it will not delay. It will be fulfilled. But we serve this God who makes known the end from the beginning. So my prayer is that you and I meet the God of predestination. The God who makes known the end from the beginning. The God who will start with you. He is not trying to catch up with life as life ha ha happens. He's not trying to catch up with disaster as disaster happens. He has everything considered. And he has set along the way uh, roots and on-ramping uh, 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 roots so that we, you and I, can, back, can, can, can get back to the highway in case the enemy knocks us off. Yeah? We have on-ramping, you know, opportunities along the way. Just in case the enemy shakes you off through the day of evil. God has considered that too. He has considered the seasons that will be challenging in your life. He has considered the seasons and the days of what the Bible calls the days of evil. And he has worked out the plan, including the way in which you can be on-ramped back to the purposes of the Lord. Just in case you took a detour. Just in case you got off the highway. God will make sure that you are on-ramped back to the highway. Because he makes known the end from the beginning. He is not trying to catch up with life. There is never a situation that God, mm, I didn't consider this one. How do we? And calls an emergency meeting. Every meeting has been called long before you came into existence. Emergency meetings have been called long before you came into existence. The plan is complete. Look at your neighbor and say, the plan is complete. The plan is truly complete, LSA. There may be times where you feel like or it looks like to you that maybe the plan is not complete. But actually, the plan is complete. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. So God is the I am. In him, the past, the present, and the future are all always reconciled. 
he always lives in the present in which the past, the present, and the future are joined into one place of reconciliation. The issue is that you and I have to discover that along the way because you and I live in time. You know, we need to pray and seek the face of the Lord and to seek God about the things he has already established. And that's part of the journey of faith is that you and I must pray and seek the face of the Lord. So we're looking at predestination through the story of Joseph and we're reflecting on the fact that God said to us in 2013, Joseph is your prophetic icon. That's just another way of saying Joseph is your example in life. You study this character. He's got a, a prophetic significance for your journey, for your story. You know, and so, and that's what we've been doing ever since then. And it's good to uh, proclaim these things once again, but some of us were not around in 2013 when God said these things. And I want us to read the Joseph scriptures. How many of us know they love the jo Joseph scriptures? Amen. You, that's when you just let the, the word of God minister to you, just the word of God to speak into your heart and to massage you and to, to heal you and to establish you. Genesis chapter 37, from verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And it says, this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, the account of the father Jacob is reflected in the story of the son, Joseph, and of his sons. And that's the Hebrew uh, uh, understanding of things, that the son is a builder of his father's house. And so the story of Jacob is reflected through the story of Joseph and his brothers. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, and I made the example last Sunday, that he would have been around, well, who do we have today? Malus' age. He would have been around Dumo's age. So we're talking about a young man here. We're talking about a teenager. I mean... How do you love to be 45, 46 and be feeding off the teenager's life? Yeah? And then God, God has a sense of humor, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like we can feed off this man, young man's life. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. You know, last Sunday... We finished the meeting and went home and watched the cartoon of Joseph. Just to illuminate our minds further. Because it was quite a significant Sunday. In verse 3, now Israel, Israel being Jacob, another name for Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. I mean, this is the, a normal family with preferred children. I don't know if it happens in other families here. It doesn't happen. This is the house of God. I mean, it's like there's equal love. Yeah, there's equal love. No loving of Zinzile above other. I mean, this, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the house of God. You know, things are, you know, things work a certain way in the house of God. But it does serve for Jacob. <laughs> now, Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him, a coat of many colors as uh, popularly known. 
When his brother saw that their father loved it, the issue with the, <laughs> the issue that preferred child, the siblings can figure that out. Right? <laughs> That's, that's the only problem. That, <laughs> the siblings can actually figure it out. <laughs> when his brother saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Hopefully in this house of God, there are no siblings hating other siblings because... No, this is the house of God. These things don't happen here. In verse 5, Joseph had a dream. So this is God speaking to the man. Joseph had a dream, and when he told, his, he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Then he had another dream. So God is speaking. God is establishing something. And he told it to his brothers. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you heard? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So we are dealing with small-mindedness here. We're dealing with village life. We're dealing with issues of battles of who's more important than the other. Battles around issues of ranking and all of these things. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. In verse 17, Genesis 37. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes a dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. The cistern was basically like a pit they used to dig in those days uh, where there would be wells, like an underground um, um, a system of preserving water, basically. Um, in, verse, uh, in verse 21, when Reuben... Reuben was the you know, big brother, had this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let not, let not take, let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Now, interesting, right? It's like uh, there is an attempt to solve, to, to intervene, but there's political correctness, as we said last Sunday, and this is creating uh, uh, you know, problems here. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him. It looks like Joseph was wearing this coat every day. <laughs> they must have loved him. You know, everybody has a preferred jacket, right? Do you have a jacket that you tend to un unconsciously pick up every day, like, <laughs> like me, you know, like everybody has a preferred stuff, right? They stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal in verse 25, they took up and saw, they, sorry, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh and they were uh, on their way to, to take them down to Egypt. So dealing with trade, and this must have been a, a route for trade, spices, and very, very interesting situation here. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, so Judah is the second guy that attempts to save Joseph, said to his brothers, 
What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. I'm still a, a crazy option. And not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianites uh, merchants came, came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up, up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So they were not thinking about the consequences of what they were really doing here. When Reuben returned in verse 29 to the sister and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I tend now? Reuben is obviously feeling a sense of responsibility here. Then they got out, they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. I mean, they don't even say, they're not even saying examine to see whether it's our brother's robe. They're saying whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So there's a conspiracy here being formed around this situation. Then we go back to Psalm 105 verses 16 to 23. God called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food in Psalm 105, verses 16 to 23. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shekels. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over, over all he possessed to instruct the princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel, in verse 23, entered Egypt. Some very, very significant things happening here in and through the life of Joseph. So we're looking at predestination through the story of Joseph. And I want to begin us, I, you, know, uh, you know, pulling up this image again that we did look at, I think it was our sli last slide last Sunday, that when we look, look at the story of Joseph, we're looking at God's plan in the form of intersecting circles. These different things playing out around Joseph. It's a multi-layered, complex story. And it teaches us something about, you know, everything is connected in the purposes of God and that we have to manage uh, you know, every circle that is around us that connects, you know, our life is not just one circle, and I, I, I hope that it was. It's not like that, right? Uh, we have intersecting circles. We have different things playing out all at the same time. So, you know, such was the life of Joseph. And I, I want to pull that up in our minds and just register that in our minds as we go through this story again and as we cover whatever that we want to cover, uh, you know, this afternoon. So we spoke about what was done to Joseph. They stripped him of his robes in Genesis 37, verse 23. And the robe represented anointing and identity. They put him in a waterless cistern, a waterless pit in Genesis 37, verse 24, which would have been a place of obscurity. He would have been fearful in that place, alone, uh, as a, you know, his brothers threw him there. And then they sold him as a slave, Genesis 37, verse 28, and this was a moment of rejection, of abuse, and of separation. He was being separated from his family. They dipped his robe in blood, which was a, a moment of cancellation 
of everything that Joseph represented in the midst of his family. They were canceling him in their memory. They were saying, well, Joseph no longer exists. Then they accuse him falsely. We know Potiphar's wife, Genesis 39, verses 17 and 18, which was a, a moment of reputational damage for Joseph. This was a defamation of character. And number six, the thing that I did not have in this slide last Sunday is that they forgot about his good works. Genesis 41, verses 9 to 13, remember, when he had prophesied to the two guys, the baker and the cup bearer, and, and that he actually they forgot about his good works. There was a sense of lack of honor that Joseph had to process inside of his own life. These are some of the things that Paul, uh, Joseph was dealing with, some of the difficulties that Joseph was dealing with. And again, we begin this looking at Genesis 50, verses 19 to 21, as Joseph has a conversation with his brothers. His brothers approach him to make a plea, to try and secure something with him. They feel, you know, scared because now by this time, their father Jacob is dead. They feel like Jacob might revenge himself. And so they come and make a plea. They make this plea with him. And this is Joseph responding in Genesis 50, verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And from that conversation, we pick up three key statements that we are registering as a word of God to us. The first is, don't be afraid. Let's say that together. Don't be afraid. The second is, be, be reconciled. Let's say that together. Be reconciled. And the third is, God will provide. Let's say that together. God will provide. And these are the three things that we want to be praying about, LSA. They want to be petitioning uh, God about. That want to be praying and fasting around. Want to fast around God, deal with issues of fear in my heart. God, reconcile me. God, provide for me as I walk in the journey of your purpose. I need your providence. I need your provision. And so I want to be believing God around these three issues. I want us to, as we step into the end of the year, as we step into the festive season, to be contemplative around these three issues. To not be afraid, to be reconciled, and to believe in the provision of God in his purposes. He will provide. He will provide. God is faithful. He will provide. And these are the three things that we extract out of this the, the words of Joseph to his brothers. Don't be afraid. Be reconciled. God will provide. And we made the example coming to the issue of not being afraid of these men and women in Hebrews who were actually not afraid. Hebrews 11 verse 35 to 38. There, was, there were those who under torture refused to give in and go free. How do you refuse to give in and go free? They were preferring something better, the resurrection. So they considered that the deals that, was being, that were being made with them were not godly. They were not good. So they refused to give in and go free, preferring something better, the resurrection. Others 
braved abuse and whips and yes, chains and dungeons. We have stories of those who were stoned, sawed in two, murdered in cold blood. Stories of vagrants wandering in, uh, the earth in, in animal skins. Homeless, friendless, powerless. The world didn't deserve them making their way as best they could. I love that. Making their way as best, as, as best they could. Look at your neighbor and say, make your way as best you, could, you can. Making their way as best they could on the cruel edges of the world. Of the, of, of the, world. the cruel edges of the world. Making their way as best they could. Considering options that were before them. Remember, Christ in Christ, in Christ. Christ is our defined sphere of options and limits. Considering what they could do and what they could not do, given the fact that they were now in Christ. And I made the example of this young lady, Perpetua, last Sunday. A young lady of 22 years old. A wife, a mother of an infant who was persecuted and executed for her belief in Jesus Christ in Tunisia. And this is A.D. 203. And this lady, uh, her father, who was a noble, came to her to beg her to renounce Jesus. And the day of her execution, the father showed up with a little boy. I mean, that's like goes against every motherly instinct, right? You know, if you think about that, you know, and somebody showing up with your baby boy, on the day of your execution, just as a way to say, hey, you have one last you know, option here. I mean, a chance to, to, to renounce Jesus, and this lady wouldn't. There was no fear. There was no fear. There was no fear. In Genesis 50, verse 20, when the brothers come to Joseph to make a plea, and it says, but Joseph said, but Joseph said, the response, what this phrase tells us, Ellison, is that the response of Joseph could not be deduced from the plea of his brothers. It had to come from another source. We've got to up the conversation. We've got to upgrade ourselves in the conversations of life. We can't be caught up in the issues. Look at your neighbor and say, up your game. His, his response to his brothers could not be drawn from what the brothers were saying or had said. It had to come from another source, but Joseph said. You know, he, he could have tried to work it out based on what the brothers had said to him, but he was already resolved by the time they came to him, but Joseph said. So the question for you and I is, what is your God-inspired counter-narrative to the chaos of life? What is your God-inspired counter-narrative to the chaos of life? If we have to depend on the chaos itself, to work out some narrative, then woe unto us. If we have to depend on the chaos and the conflict and the situations of trouble to try and work out a narrative, a position in life, then woe unto us. Joseph had to draw from another source, from a source that was God, his God, a source that was beyond the table of conversation at that point in time. What is my God-inspired counter-narrative to the chaos of life. But Joseph said, 
I think his brothers were shaken by his response. Because there's nothing that they had done. I was actually thinking about the story. I mean, they sell him. Initially, they want to kill him, and then they sell him. And there would have been many years, about 17 years. They could have gone looking for him. They did it. They did it. I mean, he was 17, so it would have been 13 years or so. Within the space of 13 years, not a single brother goes out to say, let's look for our brother. Maybe he's still alive. You know? So, so, so I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a terrible story. And so when they come to make a plea, Joseph has to lift up his eyes and his heart towards God, and he draws from God. What is your God-inspired counter-narrative to the chaos of life? But Joseph said, how do we change the, 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 you know, the game inside of conversations? Inside of reflections, as we interact with people. How do we switch the channel? Remember the phrase, switch the channel? How do we switch the channel in the midst of conversations? As we listen to people and as people try to explain themselves in all that they may have done to us, how do we switch the channel? Because we are hearing from God and are not dependent on what the good words people have to speak to us. Yeah? We cannot depend on the good words people have to speak to us. We've got to be able to switch the channel and hear from another source and respond to situations of conflict from another source. And that source can't just be your goodness, can't be just be your self-righteousness. It's got to be God inside of your life. But Joseph said, but Joseph said this, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. These are, these are the words that Joseph speaks to his brothers. That word intended means to weave, to fabricate, to think, and to plan. To weave, to fabricate, to think, and to plan. And so, Joseph is basically saying, well, look, brothers, you are doing something horrible to me, but actually through your horrible actions, God was weaving something else. He was fabricating a garment of his purpose in my life. He was putting together, you know, things, using situations of evil. How amazing is that? So that's what Joseph says to his brothers. You were seeking to harm me and to cause pain and to destroy my life, but actually, through your actions that were evil, God was weaving and fabricating a garment. He was planning something, was putting something together. But Joseph said, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. What is now being done. The chaos of life must resolve itself in a predetermined season of divine activity of the Spirit of God. The deeper we enter into, into the purpose of God is the more we're going to be healed and the more we get healed from the issues of life. The chaos of life resolves itself in a predetermined season of divine activity of the Spirit of God. When we enter into that predetermined season of divine activity, we say, aha, this is what God was really leading me to. And as I see that, that heals me. It heals my heart. 
So what is Joseph really saying to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20? He's saying this. If you want to paraphrase his words, I, Joseph, recognize that the past pains and troubles in my life were a trigger for the purposes of God. I recognize this. So I, in other words, I don't see myself outside of the situation of being sold as a slave. That's what reconciliation means. I recognize the past pains, the past troubles as a trigger to the purposes of the Lord in my life. So here's the thing. As long as, you know, we find ourselves in a situation where we recognize the past pains and troubles as a trigger, but at the same time, we, 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 we want to wanna get rid of that past, it means we're not reconciled yet. Yeah? So Joseph came to a place where he could not see his life without the situation of his brother selling him as a slave. He could not see his life without the situation of his brothers selling him as a slave. He could not see his life without that pain. He could not see his life without the trouble. I recognize that the past pains and troubles were a trigger that God was using to release, to unleash his purpose in my life. That's where you and I need to get to, want to get to. That's where God is bringing us to, LSA. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says, To everything there is, a, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. To everything there is a season. That word season in the Hebrew means a, a predestined time, a predetermined time, a pre-appointed season. To everything there is a season. There is a time. And that word time meaning a time of occurrence of an event. That God will preserve us and will cause for certain things to happen because there are situations, there are seasons that is leading us to. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose. That word purpose meaning a desire, a matter under heaven. So Joseph is saying, I don't see myself without this pain. I don't see myself without this trouble. I am fully reconciled with what you did, although you did it to harm me. But I could not be Joseph without the moment when you sold me as a slave. I could not be the man that I am now. Basically, Joseph is saying, without that moment of being sold as a slave, the track of my life, the track, the journey of my life, the trajectory of my life would have been very different and really would have missed the mark. So I see and I'm harmonized and aligned with that moment when you sold me. But he says, I'm not in the place of God. I, I, I'm not going to revenge myself. You know, in other words, basically, Joseph is saying, you brothers have to have your journey about what you did. You've got to have your journey about what you did. And he's saying, I've had my own journey. And the journey is this. That I could not become the Joseph that I am today without you selling me. I could not become the Joseph that I am today without you, you know, conspiring to kill me. And so we've got to think, Alessia, about what are the moments of pain and trouble that God has used in your life to bring you to where you are today? What are the moments of pain and trouble that God has used in your life to bring you to where you are, that you recognize? I'm not, no, it's not, it's not going to be everything. Eh? So I'm not saying look at every, or accept every situation of pain and trouble as a God moment. No, I'm not saying, I'm just, I'm just saying, and as we reflect inside of this Joseph process, we want to come to a place of illumination of a God 
Why are the areas of trouble and pain and conflict that you have used in my life to bring me to where I am? And, and if we can begin to think through that, then we are reconciling with the past and we're coming to a place of healing. I recognize, this is Joseph speaking, if we paraphrase, I recognize the past pains and troubles as a trigger to the purposes of the Lord in my life. What are the troubles and pains that if did not happen in my life, I would be a very different man or woman today. And maybe I don't even want to know what kind of man or woman I would have been. Yeah? What are the things that, to use the language of Romans 8.28, what are the things that have been lost but have added profit to my life? The pains. God works in all things for the good, for the profit. What are the losses? What are the pains that God may have used in my life to bring me to where I am today? That now I recognize that, hey, this situation here was actually valuable, although it was painful at the time that it happened. Yeah? Was, I mean, this story of Joseph was painful, of course, when it happened. So if Joseph was launched by God through conflict with his brothers, but had failed to accomplish purpose, he was going to be left in a state of insecurity, a state of offense, and a state of bitterness. If Joseph was launched by God through conflict with his brothers, but failed to accomplish purpose, he was going to be left in a state of insecurity, a state of offense, and a state of bitterness. So here's the thing. Let's say unresolved people die where? Unresolved people die where? In the desert. That's the story of Israel. Unresolved people die in the desert. The whole generation that was released, delivered by God from Egypt, to go to the promised land that was unresolved along the way because they were caught up in the logistical challenges of the journey. Instead of looking at the destiny God was leading them to, they died in the desert. What is a desert? The desert is the transitionary space. There are transitionary spaces in the journey of purpose. And it's good for you and I to discern those. There are transitionary spaces in the journey of purpose. You know, in the story, when you study migration of animals, migration of birds, uh, you know, migrations are moments of vulnerability. Because it is during migration that the predators go out. Do you know this? Yeah. I think Malusi will know this because he loves National Geographic. It is during the migration that the predators go out. But at the same time, the migration is necessary. So here's the situation of the migration. When seasons are about to change, animals have to move from point A to point B, right? The migration must happen. But here's the thing. The migration is a moment of exposure. It is a moment of vulnerability because that's where the predators go out, hunting. And in a sense, the story of the last two to three years of the pandemic has been a story of transition in the church. And look at the damage that that has caused. The migration is necessary. We have to migrate. 
but the migration also is an opportunity for predators. So in the day of migration, spirits go out. As these birds fly, that's when things go wrong. In a sense, it is safer to stay where you are, but you can't because you're going to die. You know, the seasons of life force migrations. If you stay where you have been spiritually, you will die. A season will find you in a wrong place and you will die. So a migration has to happen. Change is part of the journey of life. But at the same time, change is a moment of vulnerability. Because a lot of stuff can happen in a time of change. And so if you go and watch National Geographic and see all these animals migrating and all stuff that happens. And, you know, and see them try to protect one another and the chaos. And do you, do you find this can be chaos, right? Yeah. Because predators come to cause chaos. That's the first thing that they do. To disrupt the order. And once the order has been disrupted, then they go for the vulnerable. They go for those who are straying. That's basically what happens. The Bible does say, be careful, the enemy pulls around like a roaring lion. Yeah. So it actually tells us of, or uses the same metaphor of animals migrating and predators going out to look for the prey. So you need to migrate for survival, but when we migrate, that's when the predators go out, hunting. And so you have this conflict of tension. And what saves the moment is the order of God during the migration. The order of God. Unresolved people die in the desert. Look at your neighbor and say, unresolved people die in the desert. The book of Proverbs says, you know, where there is no vision, people perish, right? And that word perish means they unravel, they die, they unravel, they scatter. Actually, the proper word is scatter, you know. There's been a lot of scattering in the church. Where there's no vision, people perish. Where there's no, there's no one thing pulling a people into a future, you're going to find a scattering. Not a scattering as in X, scattering, which is the word diaspora. But we talk about a bad kind of scattering. Yeah? The dying kind of scattering. Yeah. Because when you study Israel and their migration, there's so many things that they got caught up in during the desert. They tended to elevate, their mistake was to elevate things in the desert that were actually supposed to, be, to have been diminished in view of the destiny they were going to. So the fact that, oh, shucks, we're migrating here and there's no water was an issue, but not an issue more important than the promised land. Yeah? The fact that, oh yeah, we're migrating, but there's no food today, was an issue, but not an issue more important than the promised land. The problem, to be unspiritual, was to elevate a logistical challenge of migration above the issues of destiny, and then to make critical decisions based on that. That's the scattering. That's the unresolved people die in the desert. Want to come to that place of healing and resolution. And we find healing and resolution through 
realizing the purpose of God. You find issues of healing and resolution by realizing the purpose of God. The nation of Israel was launched by God but never realized purpose, right? And, the, and what you see at the end of the journey, they were insecure. They seemed like grasshoppers. Yeah. And so this is, how do you see this? And as people journey, they keep referring themselves or comparing themselves to the former environment instead of being pulled by the future. Egypt kept coming up, right? Egypt, Egypt. Each time they had a challenge, what do these people say? Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. And that's when you see there's, a, there's an issue of vision here. There's an issue of sight here. They're allowing the logistical challenges of the, of the journey to, to blind them of the beauty of their destiny. So the thing that they start the journey for, which was the promised land, they get hijacked along the way and other things become a priority. Other things become a priority. Unresolved people die in the desert. The desert is a space of transition. The desert is never des designed to be a destination point and so therefore I can never make critical decisions based on the desert. Because it's not my destination point. But will it have issues of drought? Yes. Will it have issues, problems of hunger? Yes. But I will not make critical decisions based on a, place, a space that's supposed to be a transitionary space for me. And I think that's the thing, one thing that Joseph mustered. Don't you think? Potiphar's house did not become a place of significant change for him. The prison did not become a place of significant change for him. He knew that there was a future. He knew that there was a promise of, of the Lord. He knew that God had spoken something inside of his own heart. And he was looking forward to that thing. He did not let the transitionary spaces to influence him to a point of making critical decisions. So the, 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 there's this principle, you know, Jesus captures it when he deals with the uh, disciples when he sends them on a mission, don't greet anybody along the way. He's, he's trying to help them to avoid distractions. Because I start the journey sent somewhere by God, right? And then I walk through the journey, and then, oh, shaka, I realize I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. But actually, yes, I'm meant to recognize that, oh, yeah, I'm thirsty and hungry, and believe God for, for provision, but keep my eyes on the promised land. So the people of Israel, their problem is that the thing they left Egypt for was never realized. The thing they left Egypt for was never realized. And that's the issue. The thing they left Egypt for was never realized. And that's the problem. Don't make significant directional movements in a space of transition. That's the wisdom we get from that. Understand and discern the space of transition. Discern it for what it is. A desert is a space. It's not a destination. He didn't, he didn't release them from, the, from Egypt to send them to the desert. And so there may be, I don't care, hunger, thirst, snakes biting, all sorts of things, but you cannot make critical decisions. Yeah? in a space of transition. You've got to wait 
for that to come to a place of conclusion. Transitionary spaces are not, space, are not spaces where you make a significant you know, uh, change of direction in, in your life. Unresolved people die in the death. But if we are unresolved, what happens is that along the way we are looking for significance. We're looking for something to validate ourselves. Yeah. When you leave, leave Egypt, you sing the song, the horse and the rider is drowned. Yeah? Worshiping the Lord is all prophetic. And then the horse and the rider begin to dissipate in your rearview mirror. And you realize the Egypt in you. Yeah? You realize the Egypt in you. So instead of Pharaoh being the problem, the people become the problem. And you begin to have these problems along the way. Transitionary spaces. Unresolved people die in the desert. Predestination is not only the destiny, but also the process. Predestination is not only the destiny, but also the process. So Joseph had to run the race marked out for him, right? Therefore, Hebrews 12 verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so is easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There's a race marked out and we better descend that race. And if you wanted to paraphrase that, look at God, the nature of God. He is the beginning, he is the way, and he is the end, yeah? I am the beginning, God says. I am the end, God says, but he also says I am the way. I am the transition. God says, I am the starting point, I am the transition, I am the destination point. We've got to be feeling God all along the way, because God leads us. We've got to feel him all along the way. We've said this, that the story of Joseph reflects the intersection of good and evil, right? God sends a man, but the man is sold as a slave by his brothers. That's the intersection of good and evil. And we, these things have to be resolved on the inside of us. Intersection of good and evil. God sends a man, but the man is sold as a slave. Looks like conflicting realities, but actually, it is all resolved inside of heart, Joseph's heart. Joseph no longer sees himself without the experience of being sold as a slave. And I said, God, go back to your upbringing, family upbringing. Go back to your family backgrounds. Go back to your past and look at Maybe experiences them, them, that may have been painful experiences, but that God used to trigger, to launch you into where you are. Things that if did not happen, you would not be here today. Even though they may have been painful at the time that they happened. God sends a man, but the man is sold as a slave. That's the intersection of good and evil. Psalm 105 verse 17, God sends a man before them, but the man is sold as a slave. There's this intersection of good and of evil, you know. How amazing is this? The prophecy to Joseph by his father, Genesis 49, verses 22 to 26. Joseph is a fruitful vine. Can we be a fruitful people? Joseph is a fruitful vine. Genesis 49, verses 22 to 26. We've got to be productive people in the purposes of the Lord. 
He says a fruitful vine near a spring. There's a positional issue there. In other words, Joseph draws from a deep devotional life. He's a devotional man. He's being empowered by the realm of the spirit. He's a fruitful vine that is drawing life from a spring of water whose branches climb over a wall. His branches, the branches whose branches climb over a wall, which means Joseph overcomes limitations imposed by life. What are the limitations that are imposed by life right now to you and I that you and I have to overcome? Joseph climbs over walls. He will overcome limitations imposed by life. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. So we know this, that Joseph exists in the environment of warfare, right? With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. So he remains in an offensive warfare posture. There is a constant posture of warfare that Joseph exists in. Even though he's being attacked, he's a man of war. And they say, you're called by God to be you know, a people of war. He is a man of war. He's a fruitful vine. He's drawing from a spring. He's climbing over walls. There are no limitations imposed by life that will be successful against Joseph. He's been shot at by, you know, uh, by archers. But he remains steady. He is bold. He is a man of war. Not only is he fruitful, and there's a strength of God upon him. The strength of God is his source. It says in verse 25, because of your father's God, father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies be below, blessings of the breast and womb, your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. And the stature and ranking inside of this man's life. How amazing is this prophecy to Joseph? Genesis 49, verses 22 to 26. We resolve, as I said, to be a fruitful people. Yeah? To be a fruitful vine, that God will make this church a fruitful vine who's, that, that draws from the fresh waters of the Spirit and whose branches climb over walls that we know no limitation. We don't allow life to impose limitations on us. Whether these are spiritual limitations, whether these are logistical limitations, whether these are financial limitations, will not allow life to impose limitations on us. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. We exist in the environment of warfare, but our bow is steady. He remains steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. So, drawing strength from God. Drawing strength from God. Drawing life from the fresh springs of the spirit. Being a, being a fruitful vine whose branches will climb over the walls. And walking in the power of the blessing of God. 
the blessing of God. How beautiful is that prophecy? Joseph is a fruitful vine. Joseph is a fruitful vine. He draws and is positioned near a spring. He's drawing life from the realm of his spirit. And his branches climb over walls. There is no limitation that will stop this man in his journey to purpose. With bitterness, archers attacked him, but he remains steady. His bow remains, he's, he's ready to attack. He's ready to go after the enemy. And he's receiving help from the Lord. He's receiving strength from God. Genesis 49, verses 22 to, 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 to 26. Prophecy to Joseph. Beautiful. Beautiful. And if you read in Genesis 49, just verses 23 to 24, from the amplified version, it says, skilled archers have bitterly attacked and sorely worried him. They have shot at him and persecuted him. And so there's a strategy from the enemy. A strategy of fury and of continuous effort to frustrate. But it says in verse 24, in the Amplified, but his bow remained strong and steady and he rested in the strength that does not fail. I like that. The strength that does not fail. For the arms of his hands were made strong and active. They were made strong and active. Not just talking about strong strength from a place of rigidity. Strong and active. The New American Standard updated says strong and agile. So in the word, the word in the Hebrew uh, is, a, is one word that is translated strong and active. It means to, be, to have strength, fortitude, to leap and to dance. Strength, fortitude, to leap and to dance. The ability to have movement, to be flexible in the things of God, but to have strength all at the same time. That there's mobility and agility, but that agility doesn't come out of the fact that I'm light. I'm full of the substance of God. And yet I'm agile. So in the picture, in the spirit, it's not a big guy that can't tend. I saw, I went to a gym the one time, you know, a couple of years ago, I saw this big guy, and I was trying to get into his car. And he was doing this. As though, as though he, you know, his neck was painful. The guy was big. Big, but lacking agility. So we're talking about a lean muscle. We're talking about a lean muscle. Strength. Strong and active. Let's say those words together. Strong and active. The strength does not slow me down. Agile in the New American Standard updated. I have strength. I have fortitude to leap and to dance. So this word is the same word that is used to talk about. Remember David when he was bringing back the ark and he began to dance? That's the same word. I cannot try the kinds of moves that David pull up that day. We'll leave that to Carl. <laughs> but man, there was agility. Strength and agility. Strength, fortitude, and he was leaping and dancing. So how beautiful is that? The combination of strength and agility. I want that. 
Strength does not slow me down, but I'm not agile because I'm light. My agility is linked to strength, and my strength is linked to agility. And this is a beautiful prophecy to, to, to Joseph from his father. Genesis 49, this is um, 22 to, to 26. Strong and active is what we want. Strong and active, let's say, strong and active. So, so to see the story of his life co uh, correctly, Joseph had to stand in the position of God and not in the position of self or of his pain. When Joseph saw his past through the lens of God, he was empowered to forgive. He was empowered to reconcile. He stepped into a new realm of wisdom. And although he was a victim, he gave counsel to the perpetrators, his brothers. When Joseph saw his uh, past through the lens of God, he was empowered to forgive. He was empowered to reconcile. He stepped into a new realm of wisdom. And although he was a victim, he gave counsel to his perpetrators. A man elevated to a new place of wisdom. He was drawing from another source in his conversations. Beautiful, beautiful story. Beautiful story. Beautiful story. Joseph had to manage the tension of progression of his life without the pleasure of the presence of his family. Mm -hmm. His family was not there when he got married. His family was not there when he got his two sons. His family was not there when he first stepped into his role within Egypt with, with Pharaoh. So Joseph had to manage the tension of progression of life. Life was progressing inside of his life. Babies were being born and babies were being named. And there wasn't the pleasure of his family. And he named his sons, the firstborn son, Manasseh, was called Manasseh because Joseph said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. So this way of saying, I'm reconciled with the past. I'm reconciled with my past troubles. And then he named his second born Ephraim, saying, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. God has made me fruitful in the land of pain, in the land of isolation, I am a fruitful man. Manasseh and Ephraim. So there was meaning to the names that were given to his son, to his sons. And so when we look at Joseph, we see these intersecting, you know, circles of life. The story begins with his pain, his personal pain, conflict with his brothers. But the story is linked to God's covenant to Abraham. God had said to Abraham, you know, your descendants will, will, will enter the land. They will be oppressed there. So Israel had to go to Egypt. But the reality of it is that they went to Egypt through, 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 through Joseph. And the reality of it is that Joseph went to Egypt because he was sold by his brothers. So what do you choose and pick here? There was the imperative, therefore, of reconciliation. Because God was actually forming a nation. He, uh, jo Joseph had to reconcile with his brothers. The nation of Israel had to be formed because God was actually witnessing to nations. He was proclaiming his righteousness to nations. And as, as Joseph is about to die, he says, take my bones when you live. He recognizes, do you know what, how significant that is? That means that Joseph recognized Egypt 
as a place, as a, tra a transitionary space. Although he did so many significant things there, but he still recognized. So, you know, and the problem with, with, with us believers is that, you know, sometimes, you know, God will take you into a transitional space and you do stuff in the transition. You don't stay, you don't sit and sleep. You achieve a whole bunch of things and then we can be distracted by the very things we're achieving. We always have to lift up our eyes and keep our gaze on the destiny that was set when we left our former environment in the first place. So Joseph would have spent all these years in Egypt and had significant time there, was known, was, had, had built a name and a legacy there, but still recognized that Egypt was a transitionary space. It was never meant to be a place of destiny. And how do we know this? Because when he when he's about to die, he says, take my bones when you leave. Now how amazing is this? During the migration of Israel, there are big people carrying a coffin. You can imagine, you know, kids, Joshua's and Timothy's, what's, what's in there? It was the bones of our forefather Joseph, you know. With all the trouble they went through of not having water and food and snakes biting them, they were carrying the coffin. Because he had made them to commit to that. Take my bones when you leave. So Joseph was, Joseph, in other words, was not a man who was seduced and distracted by achievement. And I said, there's a lot of stuff we've done this year. There's a lot of stuff we've done in the last three, four, five years. But we keep our gaze on the destiny. We're not distracted by achievements along the way. Neither are we distracted by the challenges along the way. Where there's no vision, people scatter. Where people, you know, f you know pull their gaze, move, you know, you know where the, our eyes begin to dim, Concerning the destiny that God has set for us. Stuff is going to start happening. There were people who left Egypt thinking their destiny or destination point was a promised land. Became, that destination point became the desert. The problem with that is that the desert is a transitionary space. So Joseph, with all the supplying of food, with the wisdom to Pharaoh, with significant name being built there still recognize hey this is not my home this is not where my life ends this is not where my story ends there is a promised land there is a place of final destination point and i'm gonna keep my gaze on that take my bones when you leave i think if it was a a believer in 2022 would have said, build a, a memorial, a tomb, and say, well, the interpreter of dreams. Here lies the interpreter of dreams. The supplier of food. A significant man. Joseph was not concerned about all that. We can't build a legacy in the wrong place. can't build a legacy in a foreign land. 
take my bones when you leave. Keep your gaze at the destination point. Hmm? You are but one in the midst of intersecting cycles of life in the purposes of God. Forget your little story of pain. It's really just insignificant in the midst of all that's playing out around you. There is Abraham, there is a future, there is brothers, there is a nation that has rebuilt. You've got to be big in your mindset. Hmm? Big hearts and big minds, Alicia, not small, not small-mindedness. If Joseph settled in Egypt, he would have been small-minded in his, in his heart. He said, yeah, just make sure that you build a nice tombstone for me. And right there, the interpreter of dreams, the man of God, the supplier of food, the counselor to, to governments. No, take my bones when you leave. How absolutely unattractive is that? Amen. Let's stand and